This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Lerner, coming to you from Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. Today, we'll be speaking with Jennifer Allen, Associate Professor of History at Yale University. Dr. Allen holds a BA in Political and Social Thought from the University of Virginia and earned her PhD in History at Berkeley. We'll be discussing her book, Sustainable Utopias, The Art and Politics of History in Germany, which appeared with Harvard University Press earlier this year. Professor Allen is joining us from Berlin. She's currently a fellow at the Center for Contemporary History, the ZZF in Potsdam. And I'm very excited to have her here with us. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks, Paul. It's a delight to be here. It's really great to talk to you. I enjoyed your book so much. I just found it so rich and beautifully crafted. And I wondered if you could get us started by talking about how you got into this project and giving us kind of a sense of the choice you made to do this particular research agenda and kind of how what drew you to it and, and tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So this project, um, I didn't, I think this is true of most uh, research projects, I didn't intend for it to turn out the way it did. It started out as a, a much narrower enterprise, um, uh, which I think you see reflected in some of the highlights of the book, namely uh, the Stumbling Stones project, the, the Stolpersteine, uh, a kind of mini monument to the Holocaust. The project really began as an attempt to understand this peculiar commemorative initiative, uh, something that emerged in the 1990s as a reaction to large-scale national monuments that we see everywhere, these kind of big, centralized, expensive projects. Germany's National Holocaust Memorial is a great example. Um, And the Stumbling Stones uh, resisted many of those conventional commemorative practices. uh, And in the foreground of that project was the attempt to commemorate individual Holocaust victims uh, as individuals. And so I I started this project as someone who was interested in the history of memory and realized pretty quickly I wanted to do more than that. As I was exploring the origins of the Stumbling Stones project, I started to see networks of Uh, of activists that had supported the projects who were also involved in other things. So, for example, uh, in Berlin, the Green Party uh, ended up being one of the uh, more important early supporters of uh, the Stumbling Stones, important in um, getting it legalized in the city uh, retroactively. And um, so out of these networks, I started to see a a kind of investment in a particular set of values emerging in the 1980s and 90s. And the project became then not just an attempt to make sense of this one commemorative project, but to make sense of a whole milieu and the set of values, the set of practices uh, that grew out of that moment. That's really interesting to hear. And uh, especially the way you come to the Stolpersteine at the end 
of the book um, that this is really kind of stands at the beginning of your thought process as you got into the project as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, it ends up, the book, I don't frame it in this way, but it, it functions in some ways as a kind of prehistory of uh, the the cultural moment that made a memorial like this possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, a, it's such an influential project that's continued to spread, as you know, you kind of hint at at the end of, of the book, uh, really continued to spread and affect memory making practices around the world. And I, I guess what I was Um, If we could just kind of jump into a different part of the book and then maybe work our way back to that, I'm I'm really intrigued by the notion of a sustainable utopia. And I know you're um, playing a little bit with the reader's expectations there um, in the sense that uh, utopia is, of course, impossible or, you know, exists nowhere and according to standard definitions and historical usages of it. And sustainability is a very urgent issue at the right at the moment that kind of looks to the future and our ability to stay here. So I wondered if stay on this planet, I mean, so I wondered if you could kind of talk about that tension between sustainability and utopianism and kind of how that plays itself out in in the project. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the theme of sustainable utopias was uh, was also not, um, it was something that emerged much later in the development of this project. But at the f- uh, sort of forefront of my early research into the moment of the 1980s was, of course, this kind of... Uh, we might say melodramatic discourse that liked to proclaim the ends of things. So of course, famously, we have Francis Fukuyama in 1989 declaring the end of history. There are uh, uh, correlates to that. Um, Of course, in other parts of the world, Margaret Thatcher's claim that there is no alternative. But we also see this in Germany, uh, as well as in the US, uh, with scholars and public intellectuals proclaiming that we've reached the end of utopia. So uh, Joachim Fest, uh, a public intellectual publicist, wrote uh, in 1991 uh, a book called The, uh, the Dis- Dream Destroyed, Traum, uh, The End of the Age of Utopia. Uh, and there's a, a series of correlates in the United States published around uh, in, in sort of in the decade after. And this was really interesting to me, the notion that, that we might reach the end of our capacity to dream big dreams. Um, and that sounds a little uh, a little idealistic, but um, in short, I didn't buy this narrative. I, I wasn't convinced that uh, humanity had stopped uh, imagining radical futures. And um, as I was looking at, this wasn't the, the primary motivator of my early research, but as I was looking at the kinds of things that my uh, primary source, the actors in my primary sources were doing, the kinds of projects that they were initiating, the rationale behind those projects, I realized that um, these were attempts to reclaim some ability to pursue utopias, just not in the kind of totalizing sense that you saw uh, over much of the 20th century. So of course, the 20th century destroyed these kind of totalitarian totalizing projects in social engineering. If uh, if Nazism didn't teach us that we shouldn't go in this direction, then uh, certainly the end of state socialism did. And um, what I, I wanted to argue what I realized in, in researching uh, each of the different components of my book was that uh, 
when you look on the ground, when you look at more or less ordinary people, they did have quite radical dreams for alternative structures of society, uh, alternative ways of inhabiting the world um, that were quite optimistic. Uh, But what distinguished them from intellectuals and activists, politicians who are pursuing these uh, massive utopian projects is that um, by the late 20th century, we see an effort to constrain utopia to finite elements of society. They had done away with this effort to change society as a whole, and instead were looking at specific areas. So uh, commemorative politics, uh, the production of knowledge, the uh, practice of politics and political agency are the three that I take up in my book. There are, of course, many other examples. Um, But the book then became an effort to make sense of what happened uh, to utopianism after total utopias were kind of off the table. Um, The discourse of sustainability is, uh, as you noted, particularly important here. This is also the 1970s, 80s are the moment of environmentalism. This is the moment when people begin to think about what it means to be green, what it means to create a sustainable world. But part of what I argue in the book is that this mentality, the practice of living sustainably, isn't just something that's confined to uh, carbon emissions and uh, uh, deforestation and recycling. It's uh, a way of inhabiting the world that trickles down into all different elements of everyday life, including the way that we imagine our future. So sustainability was a, a kind of rubric for me to think about the transformations in this context concept of utopia, something that needed to be practiced. Sustainability is not something that you do once and for all, and then it's done. Sustainability is an ongoing project that's practiced daily, um, that's practiced at the levels of the mundane, um, in the rhythms of everyday life. And that's basically uh, the same pattern, the same rhythm that I was seeing in these new utopian projects. That's really, really interesting to hear the way you conceptualize that. And I've met many things I want to say in response, but um, one of them maybe to kind of turn back to the beginning of your answer is, to me, one of the major contributions of this book is that you've taken a period which often gets, as you just kind of characterized it, often gets thought of as sort of marked by an absence of imagination, and a um, you know the failure, the petering out, the eclipsing right of all these ambitious utopian projects, and you bring it to life, right? And you show that it's actually it's in so, in so many ways it's a beginning, not an end. And you know by focusing on these kind of smaller, maybe less wildly ambitious initiatives, but initiatives which really affected people's lives, you completely change the conception, the kind of languishing, you know this notion of this period as a really, um, in terms of what it's not, right? So I, I, I love the way you do that in the book. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, um, because as you said, you're, you're really moving across quite different material. And I think you're, um, you know, the, this book could be thought of as in part art history, in part um, environmental history, certainly political history, cultural history, intellectual history. It's so many things. And your examples are um, quite disparate, but they have the same themes running through them in ways that I I find really gratifying to read. 
I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you chose those examples, because as you just said, there could have been different ones. There could have been many more, I, I, I imagine. So um, how, and, and where in the process did the decision to focus on the history workshop movement, the, the Green Party and these um, various artistic um, kind of environmentally driven artistic initiatives? Where did where did this you know, because they're very much apples and oranges in a way, but yet they're also they're all of a, you see the same you find the same themes within all of them. Yeah, there. This is a great question, and uh, at the very outset of the book, I give the reader the important caveat that these actors, um, these groups, they're pretty strange bedfellows, at least on the surface. To bring together uh, environmental activists, a group of sort of lay historians, and a group of artists, and to argue that they all have something to say to one another is a um, maybe not the most conventional move. So, how did I come to these? In some ways, so this project was shaped my intellect background is very much as an interdisciplinary thinker. I was trained in an interdisciplinary program as an undergraduate and came um, to history somewhat belatedly. So that interdisciplinarity is shot through this book um, and uh, it's it's shaped my intellectual investments generally. Um, the question of uh, the development of this selection of sources is, um, I think, a little bit more serendipitous. So again, it started off as, as a project about the stumbling stones. And so that was kind of the core. And as I was researching the history of decentralized commemorative projects, I kept getting pulled in other different directions, uh, uh, realizing that again, actors in, uh, in this, uh, surrounding this group of artists were present in, uh, other activist communities as well. So uh, you mentioned again that that many of the artists are engaged in environmental projects. The aesthetic component of the book looks back uh, to the avant-garde artist and one of the founding members of the Green Party, Yosef Boys, and a project that he initiated in the 1980s to plant 7,000 uh, trees in the city of Kassel as a kind of uh, commemorative project to uh, urban destruction. And he's a perfect example of somebody who is, he's a behemoth in the art field, um, but he was also a a key early figure in the the green movement. And so I started to recognize these intersecting circles of activists um, and the history workshop fits in here as well, insofar as many of these activists, uh, the artists in particular, were also deeply concerned uh, with historical discourse on the Holocaust, which of course is flourishing in Germany in the 1980s. So again, each of these groups, one could look at them as freestanding. One could write a history of uh, the history workshop, and indeed uh, uh, Jenny Vostenberg, for example, has done that. One could write a history of the Greens. One could write just a history of what I call uh, spatial interventionist artists. Um, But part of what I found so interesting is the way uh, that each of these groups were speaking to one. They were speaking the same language without speaking about specific, uh, specifically the same issues. And I decided to bring them together insofar as I think, you know, it's only when you take these disparate movements and put them in conversation with one another that you start to see this new set of values emerging um, in a way that I found convincing. I think you could make this argument just about any one of these groups. Um, but part of what I want to show is that uh, this 
investment in rethinking the concept of utopia was one that was uh, uh, widespread across German society. I want to make the claim that this was not just something that impacted political life or just something that cropped up in intellectual circles or among artists, but rather something that had a really broad wingspan. And I'll just wrap up by saying that um, Again, the selection of uh, case studies is was serendipitous. I came to them kind of organically, um, but one is always limited in what one can do with a research project. If I had, you know, another three decades, this book would probably be three times as long as it is. Um, no one would want to read it, but it would cover so much more ground. Um, for example, uh, uh, one one. Uh, case study I often get asked about is the uh, the squatting movement um, in the 1980s, 1970s and 80s, the Hausbesetzer Bewegung, which also adopted a similar kind of bottom-up uh, social organization, the desire to make housing, these are our discourses also that are still deeply relevant, the desire to make housing affordable, easily available, um, and to leave that in control of, of citizens rather than the state. This is a discourse that is um, uh, uh, ongoing in Berlin today. Um, I, I could also look, for example, perhaps at the punk movement. There are actually a lot of sort of um, sub-communities within uh, music that I could explore. So it, in a sense, and you said this already, but I just want to underscore that this is a project that I hope initiates a discourse about this concept of sustainable utopia rather than um, for readers to see it as closing doors. And, and I'll also add one more uh, one more point that this is really a story about leftist projects. It's a, a kind of optimistic story about a progressive building a progressive world in a, a variety of different ways. Um, one element of uh, sustainable utopias that I talk about in the conclusion of the book, though, is that this concept is actually, I think, an empty category. It, it can be filled with whatever substance uh, its proponents want to. And I make that point, if only to say that there are analogous movements on the right as well. I don't engage with them in this book because that would have required a very different uh, uh a very different research agenda, um, but one uh, observes, for example, parallel to the development of these projects in the 1980s, uh, a movement on the right against uh, immigration, uh, for example. And I end with some discussions of uh, uh, the extreme right in the present um, that also use some of the techniques that these groups employ, um, taking radical agendas and putting them in the hands of ordinary people, bringing them into the spaces of everyday life, um, making them part of the rhythms of everyday life. This is something that's not uh, only a project of the left, it's also something that can be used by the right. Uh, and I hope that someone will spend some time thinking about uh, the ways that sustainable utopia as a concept is uh, up taken up, practiced, realized, even resisted um, in other circles as well. I found that very compelling in the book. Um, of course, quite depressing too, um, that right, these ideas, which on some level, I think, despite maybe occasional problems with individual ideas or actors, these are generally ideas that I and I'm sure many of our listeners really embrace. 
um, than to see them taken over by causes which uh, are quite abhorrent um, about restricting restricting immigration, um, kind of anti-LGBTQ agenda and so forth. And I'm, I'm wondering um, if, I guess to me it does appear, because you said that this concept is politically neutral in a way, um, or empty and can be applied. And, and, and you demonstrate that even though you don't get too deep into these movements from the right. But it's perplexing at the same time, because to me, there is something inherently progressive about this idea of kind of reaching common people of um, thinking about who owns public space and triggering, you know, kind of triggering reflection about memory in the past and mitigating complacency against complacency and so forth. So I wonder, um, is that also, are you kind of playing with that or is that, is that a contradiction or does it just not bother people on the right because their agenda is so reactionary or, um, you know, if you could kind of clarify how that operates. Sure. I, I didn't write down the list of everything that you said, but I would just suggest again that all of these things, so a concern with uh, how we think about the past, a desire to engage uh, local communities, um, I forget what the other components of your answer were, but your response about you using using spaces, all of these can be, these are none of these are inherently progressive practices. They're often used by progressive groups. Um, and one could uh, one could write, I've um, one could write, for example, about the Occupy movement and the way Occupy, what, I'm not an American historian, but uh, the way Occupy engaged some of these practices as well. Um, but um, uh, groups like the uh, far-right youth movement, the identitarians, are are using these same practices. So trying to get, um, and of course my project is about uh, uh, the 1980s and 90s, so social media is not a primary component but uh, of my previous research, but the identitarians, they are active in making ordinary European youths feel like they have agency over the trajectory of European identity. They, by their use of social media, take those discourses into, uh, again, into ordinary spaces. These are on uh, the, the cell phones, their, their use of Instagram and TikTok uh, and other social media platforms put this in the hands, quite literally, of of ordinary young people in Europe today. So, um, and uh, one could also look at movements, earlier movements uh, or movements that gained steam earlier than the identitarians like Pegida or AFD, uh, Alternative for Germany, far-right movement in Germany right now. But each of these are using local space, trying to re-engage their constituency, a constituency that feels disenfranchised. Um, and I really do want to make the case that um, the idea that we can build a radically better future, better is a, uh, what constitutes better is um is deeply politically charged. And uh, at the end of the book, I, I really temper the kind of optimism that's attached to, um, and that I attach to sustainable utopias, both as a scholar, but also as a person. I'm, I'm at the end of the day, deeply invested in the idea that we can, uh, that we still can do something uh, to improve our, our planet, to improve uh 
global society, but also our local societies. Um, but at the end of the day, I think um, this is not a concept that is only uh, uh, only of relevance to or, or can only be used in productive ways by uh, by the left. And that's part of what makes it exciting. It also, um, we have to be cautious. Okay, thank you. That really, that's such a good answer. And that, that, that enlightens me. <laughs> um, and I guess, as you just pointed out, the, um, you know, since most of your book takes place before social media appeared, and then kind of took over so much of political discussion, cultural identification, and so forth. I guess the internet itself, or something like Facebook is a perfect example of what you're talking about, that it seems to be kind of on one level inherently progressive. And I'm old enough to remember kind of early internet discourses about how, right, how it was going to be democratizing in so many ways. And, you know, eventually anybody with a cell phone can make a movie and all of that stuff, or think about the spread of political information. But as we see, so, you know, painfully in our own moment, of course, this gets applied in all kinds of ways. And there's nothing inherently progressive about something like Facebook. I mean, to say that is a to say the obvious today. So uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, yeah, I really, I really appreciate that answer. And that, that, and I I like the way, I mean, I think you're, um, you know, in the sense that as the author, you're our guide through this material, you're a very um, cautious, careful guide, and you're kind of not inflating our hopes too much, but you're also not, you know, and you're not plunging us into despair. And I I think that that, especially given where we are now in this particular political moment um, and ecological moment where it's so easy to give way to despair. um, I appreciate that you retain, um, you retain hope throughout the book. And I just wondered if you could, you you started to talk about that in your last answer, but I just kind of wondered if you could talk about this. um, I think what you um, describe in the book is the resilience of hope and, you know, where you see, what the next chapter of this book could look like or kind of what, because even though so much, so many of the individual movements you talk about aren't around anymore or are not flourishing anymore while others like the green party is actually in some ways um, doing better than ever. Right. So, um, you know, where, where do you come down and what can you tell your, your readers and listeners um, about kind of where, where we go from here? Yeah. So, uh, I think an important caveat to make about sustainable utopias, the the case studies that I explore in the book, is that despite being modest, none of them are guaranteed to succeed. And as you pointed out, many of them have sort of uh, petered away uh, in varying ways. but that part of what the book is offering, and you, you pointed to this notion that um, guides the book, namely that hope is this uh, profoundly resilient human phenomenon. Uh, sustainable utopia is a set of practices, a set of methods rather than just uh, these individual phenomena. Um, and I think, you know, I'm a historian, I'm not a prognosticator. And so I'll put that that uh, caveat here as I then uh, project into our future. But I think at our moments of deepest, darkest despair, that's when you see humanity get really creative. And uh, we've got 
for ourselves a pretty um, remarkable task. You are are, are, uh, calling in from California, where it is, what, 100 and something degrees uh, right now, (laughs) massive heat waves, uh, uh, but also wildfires and droughts. Uh, California is an example of um, so many of our, or as a, a uh, space in which so many of our environmental problems congeal. Um, but it's in these moments of crisis, of despair, of catastrophe, in which you start to see these sparks of creativity. I'll just, as a one really prominent example, point to Fridays for Future. And Fridays for Future had its moment um uh, sort of right before the pandemic, and the pandemic um, did a number on their ability to gather, which was uh, uh, quite impressive until um, our need to quarantine put the kibosh on all of that. But um, but I'll just point to that as an example because, among other things, it was an intergenerational project, but it was also driven by young people, um, and it was thinking really seriously about what it means. Uh, taking up some of the themes that I that I explore in the book, what it means to live uh, in an environmentally sustainable way, uh, what it means to preserve the capacity for uh, future generations to live uh, in a way that they see uh, fit basically to preserve um, the ability to choose to construct a, uh, the ongoing ability to, con- to choose to construct a world. Um, it's preserving that capacity. And um, I think, you know, Fridays for Future was a reminder that um, young people are, are thinking creatively about ways to uh ways to solve any number of problems. Uh, Our environmental crises are one of them. But again, I come back to our our political situation. Um, Some of these uh, solutions are also being offered from the right. So uh, the identitarian movement in Europe is responding to uh, the influx of, of, uh, of immigrants and refugees into Europe and the ways that's challenging Europeans' demographics, what it means to be European. Um, And so this is um, the identitarian movement doesn't leave me particularly hopeful, but uh, many of the kind of activist organizations um, from those that are getting a lot of airtime to those that are much smaller, uh, much more local, um, often fueled by uh, social media, the capacities enabled by uh, that dream of the internet that you described uh, earlier. Um, so I, like I said, I'm not a prognosticator. I don't want to uh, uh, to sketch out a particular vision of the future. Um, but I do think that uh, we see very clearly at our, our sort of most um, despairing moments that people uh, don't give in to that. In fact, uh, that's precisely what fuels our creativity and also the drive to fix things. Thank you. I mean, it wasn't really fair of me to ask you to make me feel better about the world (laughs) or to um, prognosticate, but um, I I appreciate that answer. And I think just like the book as a whole, you're kind of, um, you're showing how it's never black or white, right or left, right? There's always this kind of, um, any glimmer of hope seems to also carry within it the seeds of the application of those same techniques or technologies or um, initiatives in a less progressive direction. Um, And so, you know, I think that's kind of maybe one of the lessons I take from this, that there's a, 
there's there's always going to be a kind of um and any real breakthrough or initiative in terms of the cultural politics or environmental politics of a given movement is also there's also the potential for backlash and uh reaction Right. And I I just think one of the points that this book makes is that, um, so I, I, it's trying to do a number of different things. And you pointed that out earlier, but one kind of subtle uh, point in the background is that it's trying to offer a conceptual history of utopia. And we've talked a little bit about kind of the the shift in uh, ways that utopia has been conceived. And I think uh, one of the take-home points from that element of the book is that when it becomes impossible to think when, when uh, this sort of small scale utopia gets uh, repurposed in a way um, that makes it no longer useful, something new is going to replace it. Um, the rhythms of, of, uh, of the history of utopia as a concept are, this is a bigger history. Uh, it has evolved um, really over the past uh, 500 years and we see sort of gradual changes in it. I don't think, uh, I, I'm not sure how quickly we will reach a new phase of uh, of thinking about ideal futures, but um, I think one of uh, the lessons that I learned is that um, our, our concepts, including those that fuel our optimism about our world, uh, are also very, very flexible. They're plastic concepts, and uh, we are prepared um, to change the way the kind of philosophical underpinnings of our activism, uh, if it doesn't suit our current global constellation anymore. Right. And I guess um, by the same logic, if there is maybe this kind of um, utopian drive, or at least a commitment to a bigger vision, if it can't be found on the level of macro politics and academic departments and and so forth, um, that doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. And I, think one of the things your book does is show just because certain people are saying we're not thinking about utopias anymore doesn't mean other people aren't actively pursuing those kinds of agendas. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I guess maybe one other um, particular dimension to think about is the Greens and how that is, as I kind of alluded to before, that, you know, of the, com- compared to the other individuals and movements you talk about in the book, the, the Greens, I guess, on one level have to be seen as a success story with much longer staying power. On the other level, and, and again, I know you're a historian and I know the work you've done here is really about the 80s and 90s, so I don't expect you to be a political scientist, but I'm just wondering if you see in the greater success of the Green Party a kind of abandonment of the cultural politics that plays such a prominent role in your discussion of the early Greens. That's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the most interesting trajectories of the Greens recently has been to watch, as you alluded to, watch their explosion in popularity uh, following the explosion or or return to popularity following the explosion of popularity of the far right. So as Avde, Alternative for Deutschland, as they entered the political stage in 2013, they gained popularity relatively quickly uh, and found seats in uh, regional parliaments, uh, state parliaments, and then uh, and the national parliament um, within a, a relatively short period of time. During that window, the Greens had been doing. Uh, 
their performance in the polls had not been spectacular. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so it makes it all both at the national sort of regional, national and European level. Um, so it makes it all the more conspicuous that the Greens shot into uh, favor in the past sort of uh, year and a half uh, of elections. And so I think, you know, what the Greens are doing right now looks very different from the kinds of uh, of projects that I was exploring in the book. Um, culture has not sort of fell from the Greens uh, programs um, after the periods that I was describing. Um, yet in their most recent party program, we see a slow resurgence uh, of the term culture and what culture can do. And a recognition that culture, I don't have in front of me the actual language from uh, from the program, but um, they put culture in, I think it's in, in one short sentence, at the core of society. And so I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, not going to speak specifically on individual cultural projects that the Greens are doing right now, um, but it's clear that what it means to be green is not just uh, a simple political category. It's not just a simple environmental category. It's it's a lifestyle politics. Um, and I think that the ability to propose an alternative world, one in which uh, for us, and this is important right now, of course, uh, in which we are on the brink of environmental catastrophe, a sort of long lasting environmental catastrophe, the Greens offer a solution in that regard, but they also, I think, are tapping, some of their success comes from tapping back into those associations that people have with the Greens as offering something fresh, offering something new. Their origins in the German political system in the, 19, uh, in the 1980s, they brought new blood, fresh life to a political system that was, um, for a lot of the German electorate, feeling pretty stale. Um, and so I think what we're seeing right now is uh, is a return, um, a kind of oblique return to some of those roots as uh, a, a meaningful political alternative. Um, and this is, of course, a reaction to the far right, which has billed itself uh, quite literally as the alternative uh, for Germany. So um, tapping back into those roots as a, a kind of something fresh, something new for a Germany in need of uh, new political enfranchisement. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's, yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's um, almost like the 80s again, except it's more serious this time, right? And there, the, some of the stunts and the hijinks, which the, <clears throat> the earlier Greens were known for, which were about disrupting, of, as you say, a very calcified political system and uh, um, bringing in youth and more women and um, being closer to the people, quote unquote, that um, it's all, 
it, it's that I think there's less emphasis on that, but the larger program is probably um, very similar. Or yeah, at the least, greens um, are revived. the contemporary greens have become they they are an institutionalized political party. They can no longer play on being uh, being the newcomers, being the disruptors. Uh, they are uh, in some ways this is this is the price of political success. They are beholden in some ways to the strictures of, uh, of official politics. Um, and that was some of what had buoyed, I mean, this is a, a, a conventional component of alternative political, uh, political parties, uh, infrastructures, is that you um, push against the practices, sort of, um, uh, as you said, calcified this, these, these, um, ossified political structures. Uh, the Greens are very much a kind of, they exist in uh, in the collection of major parties. And in fact, when you look at some of the early rhetoric of, uh, of Avde, you see them using precisely this language. The Greens get lumped in uh, with the um, historic uh, the major historic German parties, the SPD, the CDU, and the FDP. Uh, and it's it's funny now, knowing the relatively recent history of the Greens, they're not an old party, but to see them uh, uh, see them lumped in um, with these parties with extensive histories, very long and storied histories, it's it's just a um, it's a kind of collapsing of of history that um, I think relies on the forgetfulness of, of uh, the far right's political constituency. They're hoping that uh, people have forgotten that indeed um, Germany does have political alternative. And Germany's multi-party system, even though the 5% uh, threshold, which limits um, those parties that uh, one must have 5% of the vote in order to be considered for, uh, for, for um, uh, candidacy, that is, a, that's of course, a response to the political chaos of Weimar, and that tamps down a little bit on some of the political diversity, but especially writing about uh, writing about the Greens, writing about a multi-party system from a two-party system. Um, I, uh, I the German political system does, in fact, offer options, um, and I think AfD. Uh, for those who didn't necessarily turn to the Greens, I think it oriented uh, the electorate also to some of the the other alternative parties that have um, have come in waves and have uh, never had as much quite as much success as uh, the Greens or as AfD, but have uh, nevertheless offered political alternatives as well. It really makes it feel like we're living in a new historical era where the Greens are now one of the you know, established traditional parties. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, I want <clears throat> to start to move on and I'm going to give you an opportunity in a minute to tell us about some of your new research and what you're, what you're working on, but I don't want to let pass the opportunity to come back to the Stolpersteine and the stumbling stones. And after all, that is where your project began, as you told us, and maybe it would be fitting to end our discussion with sustainable of sustainable utopias with them. And I just, um, wanted to ask you about the, the, if we could kind of check in about the status of that project today and um, whether these stumbling blocks continue to have that capacity to knock us out of our complacency, to force people to acknowledge the atrocities of the Holocaust in, as you describe it, um, you know, in a very kind of 
not in the larger, very distant notion of, you know, what's going on in, 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 a, in a camp far away or in a political discussion or in a prison somewhere, but that people lived on the, you know, in a building on a street that they did their shopping and they they took their kids to school there that, you know, that this kind of daily life um, angle to open people's minds up to the, um, to the, to the Nazi past, to the Holocaust, to the atrocities that took place on German soil and elsewhere in Europe. So I'm just wondering, are those, do those remain a kind of effective counter memorial? And do, um, if it's too large a question to just tack on like this, but kind of what is the state of Holocaust memory and the memory of fascism in Germany today, as we face kind of growing, you know, a growing aggressive and radical right um, that's resurfaced all over Europe and the U.S. over the last few years? Yeah, two really big questions, both of them excellent. So the question about, I'll start with the, the stumbling stones. Um, every time I, I I present on the stumbling stones, I need to, to double check either mo- the most accurate, uh, most up-to-date um, statistics usually actually come from their Twitter feed, uh, and I didn't check them before this uh, this conversation. But the numbers continue to go up. Uh, Gunter Demnig and and his supporters are booked up uh, sometimes uh, a year in advance or more um, if you want to have a stone laid. Um, and so there's a continual uh, a continual sort of uh, wave of uh, new stones. Um, does interest equal impact, I think, is a good way to kind of rephrase or reframe that question, because interest in the stumbling stones remains. Where they are not, uh, people continue to lay them. They are a popular research project, for example, for uh, graduating high school students. One picks uh, a, a, a an individual researches their history, funds the stone, and then lays it as either an individual or as a class. Um, family members, uh, descendants of, um, uh, of victims, um, but also those who live in houses um, from which victims were deported continue to uh, initiate stones. Um, I think the increase in stones, and this is something of, uh, of which Demnig was sort of always aware. The more of them they are, there are the more routinized they become in the landscape, and also they're made of brass, which oxidizes. So over time, they're laid initially as shiny, uh, attention-getting stones. Especially if uh, if the sun is shining, they glint and they they draw your attention. And it's not uncommon uh, to see. Uh, uh, People pass newly laid stones. Sometimes there are flowers or candles laid by them, and they'll stop and bend down. And of course, the the bending down to look mimics a bow, a, a kind of um, inadvertent act of reverence toward the stone. Um, but uh, as they as they age, they oxidize, they get routinized into the landscape, and um, you tend not to notice them anymore. What does that mean for the effect of the project? That's hard to say. Um, I'll, and I'll mention 
two things that can um, sort of push our thinking on this. One is about uh, the cleaning, annual cleaning projects. One is about Munich. Um, So each year on Holocaust Remembrance Day, there are communities throughout Germany. I can't speak to the rest of Europe. There are stones throughout Europe. I think the number is something like, uh, it's somewhere between 80 and 90,000 around uh, Europe and I think 26 different countries. But certainly in Germany, if not around uh, the rest of continental Europe, there uh, are sort of cleaning initiatives that take place on Holocaust Remembrance Day, other times during the year as well, uh, in which uh, communities will pick a, a part of the neighborhood and polish those stones so that they shine again. And I think this continued effort, this is something we see in the Yosef Boys project. It was not just the planting of 7,000 trees that made it a kind of ongoing, sustainable commemorative project, but the fact that uh, people were continually tasked with maintaining these trees and replacing dead trees. The same thing could be said of the stumbling stones, that um, monuments require upkeep and the continual investment in that upkeep keeps the monument alive so to speak. So that's one one element of the project that suggests that even if it's not as explosive as it was initially, um, even if it has become a kind of uh, 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 more institutionalized, more uh, uh, common project, that it remains something of which people are active, uh, actively aware uh, of which they're attentive. The other element of this is, of course, Munich. Munich is uh, the um, major site of opposition to the stumbling stones. Uh, there are other places in Germany as well, but currently um, Munich is uh, the best known city that has refused to install, uh, to allow the installation of stumbling stones that's been driven, uh, uh, at least initially, by the Jewish community uh, in Munich, which has uh, their approach to the stones is to see them they function in some ways as Erzat's gravestones and, and thus to walk on a stone inadvertently or otherwise is to desecrate the memory of the person it commemorates. Um, uh, one could, um, one could see this kind of reaction, uh, this kind of interaction with the stones as, as a potential, uh, act of aggression, um, even if it's not intentional. The thing about Munich that's so interesting though, is that the debates around the stumbling stones there have proven um, more virulent, more active, and more uh, and, and are ongoing in ways that they're not in the rest of Germany. So this is a there is a, a group of activists that has actually um, since the the creation of the stumbling stones project has continued to produce stumbling stones for uh, for Munich. Some of those are laid on private property. Uh, the the prohibition is uh, about laying them on public property. Some of them exist, though, on private grounds, uh, and the rest are just sort of awaiting the moment when uh, Munich officials finally agree. Um, I think that moment is probably coming. When it comes, I have no idea, but I think at some point uh, uh, there will be stumbling stones more widely available in Munich. But the point that I want to make here is that Munich, uh, Munich's debates about the project um, also keep it alive. They keep it from from becoming sort of uh, a fixture in the commemorative landscape. Um, the question about then 
how the stumbling stones have, um, I'm going to answer your question, actually, not by looking at the state of Holocaust memory, but looking actually beyond Germany. I want to end um, by thinking about the ways that the stumbling stones have helped, uh, have served as a model in other places for other commemorative projects. Um, and part of what's uh, also really interesting is that they have been, as I, as I said, they've served as a kind of uh, uh, innovative model that moves away from the tendency to communicate the gravity of a particular historical atrocity by emphasizing its anonymity, its massivity, um, and in, instead tries to foreground individuality. Um, and that has been useful in a variety of different contexts. So I want to mention three in quick succession. I'll try to get to all of them. Um, the first is in uh, is in Argentina, the second is in Russia, and the third is in the US. So in Argentina, uh, there is a, a, a very similar monument in form, if not in, uh, or in its form differs slightly, uh, but the the content and the ambition uh, are are more or less the same. Uh, they've installed plaques uh, throughout Buenos Aires. Uh, they're colorful instead of made of brass, but they all read the same. They begin the same way as the stumbling stones with the basic text "Here lived so and so," and they list the name of uh, name of the person, the uh, date of birth, date of death, uh, and if that's known. Um, and uh, these are our commemorative plaques to the victims, to the disappeared uh, uh, in Argentina. And this is a way, again, to um, take a community that has been uh, anonymized and uh, to bring them back, sort of weave them back into the fabric of everyday life. Uh, so they're a little bit more capacious. Some of them are placed at last freely chosen residents like the stumbling stones. Um, others are placed at uh, uh, um, former employers, uh, former place of employment or uh, schools, uh, etc. Um, so we see uh, here an attempt to take this model of commemorating individual victims and apply it to a totally different context. Um, the second example does the same in Russia uh, to the victims of Stalin's purges. Again, the form is a little bit different. These are placed uh, on the wall of, uh, of an apartment building uh, rather than on the ground, but they read the text is the same. They're also, uh, uh, much like the Stumbling Stones, they are a bottom-up project. So this is not a state sponsored initiative. They're funded by those who, uh, who want to place one of these plaques. Um, they also require uh, the permission of those who live in the house. And I think this is really fascinating because that requirement of permission um, mandates the initiation of a conversation about the history behind this person. So this is also a way uh, to re-enliven um, the kind of commemorative imperative behind this particular historical moment. 
And then the last, uh, the the Russian project, so the Argentinian project uh, was initiated about a decade after uh, the first stumbling stones in the early 2000s and 2005. The Russian project started in 2013. Um, And recently uh, in Montgomery, Alabama has been unveiled the National Monument to Peace and Justice. I always forget the full name, Um, but is a a monument to lynching in the U.S. And the, the form here here is uh, is quite different, but the ambition I think remains the same. So uh, that is a, a kind of a project that engages a community from the bottom up in the imperative of commemoration. So National Monument to Peace and Justice looks in some ways like a very traditional monument. It has a a core structure and hanging from that core are a series of uh, of, of massive uh, pendants that uh, uh, honor the victims of lynching in the uh, roughly 4,000 victims of lynching in all of the different counties in the U.S. uh, uh, in which they lived. What's cool about this project, I think a remarkable innovation, is that surrounding this main uh, structure is a series of duplicates of these hanging pendants. And the intention is that invested uh, counties will then come and reclaim uh, their twin pendant, bring it and erect it um, in in their own town. And again, this is about creating a, a, a discourse within a community, creating a discourse from below that says it is important to commemorate this particular uh, historical act, historical incident, historical trauma. Um, And so I'll just, I'll end by suggesting that the Stumbling Stones have offered um, a a formal, but also a methodological uh, solution to the question of how we commemorate trauma in an age of social media, in a kind of, uh, in a digital, more connected age, but also one in which um, sometimes we feel disconnected, uh, de-individualized. And uh, all of these projects are invested in uh, restoring uh, the identity of, of individuals. And um, I think that's a, it's a powerful, um, it's a powerful lesson and a powerful reminder for us uh, in our digital, in our digital age. Wow, thank you. That was um, really riveting, and and I've I've heard amazing things about the lynching uh, memorial, and but I, I didn't know about that component, um, the duplicates, and I think again that gets at the same kind of dynamic you've been talking about, uh, this sort of embeddedness in space and in, in a particular spot, right? If the communities actually do take them back with them and right put them where they are intended to go, um, so I guess. Even though most of the discussion in the book and most of the research that went into the book is clearly about Germany and West Germany in particular, it certainly radiates out in all kinds of ways, um, in much both chronologically through today and beyond, um, but also geographically. You know, the resonance is really, really global. Yeah, um, I do and- want to make the case that that this it's a project that has a very uh, specific geographical focus, as we've discussed this uh, uh, during during the course of our interview. This is a German project, um, but it's one. And I gesture at some of these monuments of, in the conclusion of the book, um, but it's one in which uh, 
I want to suggest that this is a, a, a set of values, a set of practices, a set of methods that are uh, fundamentally exportable. And I would love to see somebody take this and run with it in a really different geography. Um, and I think there are ways, there are other scholars who are, of course, interested in um, in these kind of practical uh, reclamations of uh, of. Uh, positive ambitions of, of progressive ambitions for the future um, in a variety of different contexts. So I would love to see somebody do something with uh, this idea of sustainable utopias uh, someplace else. Let's hope somebody's listening, maybe a graduate student somewhere. And, <laughs> that would be uh, wonderful. Takes, yes, that would be great if they took this and ran with it. Um, I want to just before, before we conclude, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us about what you're doing now. I know you're doing research these days uh, in Germany, and I'd love to hear a little bit about about your new project and uh, where where um, where your research is taking you. Sure. So uh, the second project is it's also a German project, but it's uh, I constructed it sort of inadvertently, um, but to try to give me a chance to do some of the things that I wasn't able to do in the first book. So one of uh, those things is um, to spend some time in East Germany. This is a project, my second book is a project that um, German historians would call a project in Verfechtungsgeschichte, uh, the history of entanglement, looking at the ways that East and West German histories were uh, intimately intertwined, as well as uh, the history of reunified Germany, were intimately intertwined with one another. Um, it's also a longer history. So this, uh, my first book is um, really on the late 20th century and even a little bit on the early 21st century. Uh, my second book project is uh, a post-war history. It is uh, a Cold War and beyond history. Um, and it takes as its question, so of the Cold War scholars have written uh, abundant amounts about the anxiety of nuclear catastrophe, the fear of, uh, of destruction. Um, and the book sort of asks what happens after that, asks, okay, we, if, if we take as a given the possibility, even likelihood of, of, uh, of massive uh, destruction, and this, of course, starts as nuclear destruction, and then over the course of the 20th century, uh, over the course of the late 20th century, uh, evolves into other things. We spent time talking about uh, environmental disaster just uh, just now. But um, my book then, if if that's the given, asks, so what happens after that? And it's, it's really interested in how the Germanies, so uh, East, West, and reunified, planned to uh, salvage society after catastrophe. So what do you, so uh, a, a, some sort of catastrophe takes place, what's worth salvaging? How do you restart uh, society? And um, in researching this project, I like to build my research around curious case studies and I found in, in looking for those case studies, two really different answers when we look at uh, East Germany versus West Germany. In the West, where I, I sort of anchored my research, um, we see a project that emerges in response to a convention uh, at The Hague in 1954, the Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict, very long title for a convention. And uh, West Germany was a signatory 
story on this, it um, dealt not only with war, but also with uh, securing cultural property in times of peace as well. And it left that aspect, uh, individual signatories were given a lot of leeway in how to implement it. The West German, uh, one of the West German answers to that question is a, a an amazing and curious project in which West Germany began to make black and white microfilmed copies uh, of the most precious objects of German cultural heritage. And they started to assemble their microfilm collection. Uh, documents included um, all sorts of different things. So for example, the um, blueprints to the Cologne Cathedral, or the uh, text of West Germany's basic law. Also some uh, less celebratory relics like the uh, text appointing Hitler chancellor. Um, and uh, Germany began to make copies of these images as uh, these massive reels of microfilm expanded. Uh, they moved them to a decommissioned silver mine uh, on the French-German border. And uh, this project remains active today. It, it has come now to um, take the form almost of a kind of ersatz archive uh, for Germany and has uh, has amassed a really remarkable, It's I don't know what the final number is right now, but it's over a billion images of these objects of German cultural heritage. So this is one answer to the question of what's worth preserving after catastrophe and what do you need uh, to restart society. Um, in the West, there was an emphasis on, uh, on this weighty question of of culture, of culture, and of the importance of, of these objects. Again, the, the notion of culture, uh, cultural property, of course, expanded as the project expanded. Um, but this offers one answer to that question. When you look on the other side of the Iron Curtain, um, I was hoping to find a project that was analogous to compare and con- the good old compare and contrast kind of project, um, and came up somewhat empty-handed. Uh, East Germany, and this sort of makes sense in the context of uh, international socialism that uh, 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 East Germany would not be as invested in uh, objects of national cultural heritage as uh, would have been the West. Um, But when I continue to look at this discourse of preservation, preservation in the wake of catastrophe, in preparation for catastrophe, I found a really different kind of archival project, um, which was, again, different contours, but equally fascinating. East Germany, this is actually during the war, uh, begins to create an archive, a seed bank, uh, a collection of uh, seeds representative of uh, East German, but really Central European uh, agricultural biodiversity. And this project, histories of East Germany are um, not often told as success stories, but um, this uh, uh, gene bank uh, in the town of Gattersleben, just outside of Halle, um, is a remarkable story of success. It assembled a massive collection, which was a a gem of the East German research landscape. Um, And after reunification, it was absorbed as the, uh, basically the national seed bank. Um, It exists, the collection exists today. It is still uh, an ongoing active seed bank. And uh, again, this is, uh, I I think helps us uh, see a different answer to this question of what needs to be, uh, what do we need to uh, restart society? 
we notice um, also, though, in in the wake of detente in the 70s, a kind of gradual cross-pollination of these two sets of interests. Uh, West Germany had lagged behind uh, the East in creating a really robust seed uh, banking uh, initiative, but we see a kind of explosion of interest in uh, the 1970s, um, likewise with East Germany and, uh, and cultural preservation. The West German story, and this is what I'm working on right now, uh, is um, the West German seed banking initiative is interesting in that uh, rather than creating some sort of either West German or Western European seed bank, West Germany looks abroad, particularly to the global South, and initiates two really interesting seed banking, uh, offers its support for the initiation of two, uh, uh, the creation of two seed banks, um, one in Costa Rica, in uh, the area of Toyaba, and uh, a second, which is um, almost even more fascinating, uh, again, this is West Germany, initiates a, pro- a project uh, uh, at the time in uh, communist Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa. And so I'm exploring kind of w- how to make sense of um, one, West Germany's uh, seed banking initiatives uh, in the global south, what this says about uh, Germany's investment in global debates about uh, about agricultural stability, about uh, uh, famine, about uh, food stability. Um, and uh, the project, I think, is going to try to offer uh, from a, a different angle an answer to the question of how Germany or the Germanys after World War II, after the Nazi period, came to reassert themselves as uh, protectors of of global society, protectors of civilization, protectors of the world, um, and what that looks like in a post-fascist era. Um, so that's the second project. It's, uh, it's uh, in its earliest phases, but um, finding some really exciting things. And I look forward to being able to share the book with uh, readers at some point, I hope in the not too distant future. Wow, I can't wait to read that. I mean, I just... And also it strikes me that this is really a perfect project for you, just that, you know, we, we have this, um, in so many ways, it conceptually really expands out from some of the topics you deal with in the first book and these kind of notions of, um, well, dystopia, utopia, but also environment and art and culture and um, heritage and memory. And it, it just seems like uh, this is a project that was waiting for you. Um, yeah, I and- hope so. I'm, I'm excited to, it, it does, it takes on, as you noted, a lot of the themes that I explore in the first book, um, but goes in really, uh, for me, unexpected directions, also in unexpected geographies. Like I said, I've, I've been doing, uh, I spent today um, researching threatened plant uh, agricultural crop species in, uh, in Costa Rica and, um, I'm learning way more about uh, uh, way more about new geographies than I had ever uh, expected to uh, as a German historian. So both Central American and also uh, uh, African history are two areas that I have not explored a lot, but plan to uh, spend a lot more time with and look forward to being in dialogue with scholars in these areas. Um, this is, I, I think this project, I see it also as part of um, an attempt to think about the relationship between Europe uh, and the global South, 
Um, and both of, of these, uh, the initiatives that I'm currently working on uh, are two that um, eventually come to emphasize the agency of, uh, of those local communities that run the seed banks, rather than uh, they begin sort of as uh, more paternalistic projects. But it's a question of, of what role does uh, do European countries play in uh, reinforcing um, and supporting without being patronizing of uh, agency in the global south. So they're questions that I think are are, are deeply important. Um, are they require as a European historian they require a, a sensitivity that um, I will only gain I think in co- in conversation with um, scholars who uh, are in these other geographies. Um, but I, it's been a real delight to start those conversations so far. Well, that's great. I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the results of this new research project. Um, yeah, that's great. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with, with me and with us today. Um, I want to remind listeners that Sustainable Utopias is available from Harvard University Press or from wherever you buy your books. And I would encourage people to, to get their hands on it as soon as they can. And uh, we will um, look forward to hearing more about this new project uh, as as time goes on. And um, hopefully we'll be able to have a, an interview, you know, with me or with another host of the New Books Network to uh, to discuss that uh, in just a couple of years or so. Great. Thanks, Paul. So thanks again for thanks again for being here and uh, and take care. <laughs>